Book Twelve, Chapters Nineteen through Twenty-Seven of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Twelve, Chapter Nineteen. I do not presume to determine whether God does so, and whether these times which are called ages of ages are joined together in a continuous series, and succeed one another with a regulated diversity, and leave exempt from their vicissitudes only those who are freed from their misery, and abide without end in a blessed immortality, or whether these are called ages of ages, that we may understand that the ages remain unchangeable in God's unwavering wisdom, and are the efficient causes, as it were, of those ages which are being spent in time. Possibly ages is used for age, so that nothing else is meant by ages of ages than by age of age, as nothing else is meant by heavens of heavens than by heaven of heaven. For God called the firmament, above which are the waters, heaven, and yet the psalm says, Let the waters that are above the heavens praise the name of the Lord. Which of these two meanings we are to attach to ages of ages, or whether there is not some other and better meaning still, is a very profound question, and the subject we are at present handling presents no obstacle to our meanwhile deferring the discussion of it, whether we may be able to determine anything about it, or may only be made more cautious by its further treatment, so as to be deterred from making any rash affirmations in a matter of such obscurity. For at present we are disputing the opinion that affirms the existence of the those periodic revolutions by which the same things are always recurring at intervals of time. Now whichever of these suppositions regarding the ages of ages be the true one, it avails nothing for the substantiating of those cycles. For what of the ages of ages be not a repetition of the same world, but different worlds succeeding one another in a regulated connection, the ransomed souls abiding in well-assured bliss without any recurrence of misery, or what of the ages of ages be the eternal causes which rule what shall be and is in time, it equally follows that those cycles which bring round the same thing have no existence, and nothing more thoroughly explodes them than the fact of the eternal life of the saints. Chapter 20 What pious ears could bear to hear that after a life spent in so many and severe distresses, if indeed that should be called a life at all, which is rather a death, so utter that the love of this present death makes us fear that death which delivers us from it, that after evils so disastrous, and miseries of all kinds have at length been expiated and finished by the help of true religion and wisdom, and when we have thus attained to the vision of God, and have entered into bliss by the contemplation of spiritual light, and participation in his unchangeable immortality, which we burn to attain, that we must at some time lose all this, and that they who do lose it are cast down from that eternity, truth, and felicity to infernal morality, and shameful foolishness, and are involved in accursed woes, in which God is lost, truth held in detestation, and happiness sought in iniquitous impurities, and that this will happen endlessly, again and again, recurring at fixed intervals, and in regularly returning periods, and that this everlasting and ceaseless revolution of definite cycles which remove and restore true misery and deceitful bliss in turn, is contrived in order that God may be able to know his own works, since on the one hand he cannot rest from creating, and on the other cannot know the infinite number of his creatures if he always makes creatures. 
Who, I say, can listen to such things? Who can accept or suffer them to be spoken? Were they true, it were not only more prudent to keep silence regarding them, but even, to express myself as best I can, it were the part of wisdom not to know them. For if in the future world we shall not remember these things, and by this oblivion be blessed, why should we now increase our misery, already burdensome enough, by the knowledge of them? If, on the other hand, the knowledge of them will be forced upon us hereafter, now at least let us remain in ignorance, that in the present expectation we may enjoy a blessedness which the future reality is not to bestow, since in this life we are expecting to obtain life everlasting, but in the world to come are to discover it to be blessed, but not everlasting. And if they maintain that no one can attain to the blessedness of the world to come, unless in this life he has been indoctrinated in those cycles in which bliss and misery relieve one another, how do they avow that the more a man loves God, the more readily he attains to blessedness, they who teach what paralyzes love itself? For who would not be more remiss and lukewarm in his love for a person whom he thinks he shall be forced to abandon, and whose truth and wisdom he shall come to hate, and this too after he has quite attained to the utmost and most blissful knowledge of him that he is capable of? Can any one be faithful in his love, even to a human friend, if he knows that he is destined to become his enemy? God forbid that there be any truth in an opinion which threatens us with a real misery that is never to end, but is often and endlessly to be interrupted by intervals of fallacious happiness. For what happiness can be more fallacious and false than that in whose blaze of truth we yet remain ignorant that we shall be miserable, or in whose most secure citadel we yet fear that we shall be so? For if, on the one hand, we are to be ignorant of the coming calamity, then our present misery is not so short-sighted, for it is assured of coming bliss. If, on the other hand, the disaster that threatens is not concealed from us in the world to come, then the time of misery which is to be at last exchanged for a state of blessedness is spent by the soul more happily than its time of happiness, which is to end in a return to misery. And thus our expectation of unhappiness is happy, but of happiness unhappy. And therefore, as we here suffer present ills, and hereafter fear ills that are imminent, it were truer to say that we shall always be miserable, than that we can some time be happy. But these things are declared to be false by the loud testimony of religion and truth, for religion truthfully promises a true blessedness, of which we shall be eternally assured, and which cannot be interrupted by any disaster. Let us therefore keep to the straight path which is Christ, and with him as our guide and saviour, let us turn away in heart and mind from the unreal and futile cycles of the godless. Porphyry, Platonist though he was, abjured the opinion of his school, that in these cycles souls are ceaselessly passing away and returning, either being struck with the extravagance of the idea, or sobered by his knowledge of Christianity. As I mentioned in the tenth book, he preferred saying that the soul, as it had been sent into the world that it might know evil, and be purged and delivered from it, was never again exposed to such an experience after it had once returned to the Father. And if he abjured the tenets of his school, how much more ought we Christians to abominate and avoid an opinion so unfounded and hostile to our faith? But having disposed of these cycles, and escaped out of them, no necessity compels us to suppose that the human race had no beginning in time, on the ground that there is nothing new in nature which, by I know not what cycles, has not at some previous period existed, and is not hereafter to exist again. 
for if the soul, once delivered, as it never was before, is never to return to misery, then there happens in its experience something which never happened before, and this indeed something of the greatest consequence, to wit, the secure entrance into eternal felicity. And if, in an immortal nature, there can occur a novelty, which never has been, nor ever shall be, reproduced by any cycle, why is it disputed that the same may occur in mortal natures? If they maintain that blessedness is no new experience to the soul, but only a return to that state in which it has been eternally, then at least its deliverance from misery is something new, since, by their own showing, the misery from which it is delivered is itself, too, a new experience. And if this new experience fell out by accident, and was not embraced in the order of things appointed by divine providence, then where are those determinate and measured cycles in which no new thing happens, but all things are reproduced as they were before? If, however, this new experience was embraced in that providential order of nature, whether the soul was exposed to the evil of this world for the sake of discipline, or fell into it by sin, then it is possible for new things to happen which never happened before, and which yet are not extraneous to the order of nature. And if the soul is able by its own imprudence to create for itself a new misery, which was not unforeseen by the divine providence, but was provided for in the order of nature along with the deliverance from it, how can we, even with all the rashness of human vanity, presume to deny that God can create new things, new to the world but not to him, which he never before created but yet foresaw from all eternity? If they say that it is indeed true that ransomed souls return no more to misery, but that even so no new thing happens, since there always have been, now are, and ever shall be, a succession of ransomed souls, they must at least grant that in this case there are new souls to whom the misery and the deliverance from it are new. For if they maintain that those souls out of which new men are daily being made, from whose bodies, if they have lived wisely, they are so delivered that they never return to misery, are not new, but have existed from eternity, they must logically admit that they are infinite. For however great a finite number of souls there were, that would not have sufficed to make perpetually new men from eternity. Men whose souls were to be eternally freed from this mortal state, and never afterwards to return to it. And our philosophers will find it hard to explain how there is an infinite number of souls in an order of nature which they require shall be finite, that it may be known by God. And now that we have exploded these cycles which were supposed to bring back the soul at fixed periods to the same miseries, what can seem more in accordance with godly reason than to believe that it is possible for God both to create new things never before created, and in doing so to preserve his will unaltered? But whether the number of eternally redeemed souls can be continually increased or not, let the philosophers themselves decide who are so subtle in determining where infinity cannot be admitted. For our own part, our reasoning holds in either case. For if the number of souls can be indefinitely increased, what reason is there to deny that what had never before been created could be created? Since the number of ransomed souls never existed before, and has yet not only been once made, but will never cease to be a new coming into being. If, on the other hand, it be more suitable that the number of eternally ransomed souls be definite, and that this number will never be increased, yet this number, whatever it be, did assuredly never exist before, and it cannot increase, and reach the amount it signifies, without having some beginning, and this beginning never before existed. That this beginning, therefore, might be, the first man was created. CHAPTER Twenty One. 
Now that we have solved, as well as we could, this very difficult question about the eternal God creating new things without any novelty of will, it is easy to see how much better it is that God was pleased to produce the human race from the one individual whom he created than if he had originated it in several men. For as to the other animals, he created some solitary, and naturally seeking lonely places, as the eagles, kites, lions, wolves, and such like, others were gregarious which herd together and prefer to live in company, as pigeons, starlings, stags, and little fallow deer, and the like, but neither class did he cause to be propagated from individuals, but called into being several at once. Man, on the other hand, whose nature was to be a mean between the angelic and bestial, he created in such sort that if he remained in subjection to his Creator as his rightful Lord, and piously kept his commandments, he should pass into the company of the angels, and obtain, without the intervention of death, a blessed and endless immortality. But if he offended the Lord his God by a proud and disobedient use of his free will, he should become subject to death, and live as the beasts do, the slave of appetite, and doomed to eternal punishment after death. And therefore God created only one single man, not certainly that he might be a solitary, bereft of all society, but that by this means the unity of society and the bond of concord might be more effectually commended to him, men being bound together not only by similarity of nature, but by family affection. And indeed he did not even create the woman that was to be given him as his wife, as he created the man, but created her out of the man, that the whole human race might derive from one man. CHAPTER Twenty Two, And God was not ignorant that man would sin, and that being himself made subject now to death, he would propagate men doomed to die, and that these mortals would run to such enormities in sin, that even the beasts, devoid of rational will, and who were created in numbers from the waters and the earth, would live more securely and peaceably with their own kind than men, who had been propagated from one individual for the very purpose of commending concord. For not even lions or dragons have ever waged with their own kind such wars as men have waged with one another. But God foresaw also that by his grace a people would be called to adoption, and that they, being justified by the remission of their sins, would be united by the Holy Ghost to the holy angels in eternal peace, the last enemy, death, being destroyed. And he knew that this people would derive profit from the consideration that God had caused all men to be derived from one, for the sake of showing how highly he prizes unity in a multitude. Chapter 23 God then made man in his own image, for he created for him a soul endowed with reason and intelligence, so that he might excel all the creatures of earth, air, and sea, which were not so gifted. And when he had formed the man out of the dust of the earth, and had willed that his soul should be such as I have said, whether he had already made it, and now by breathing imparted it to man, or rather made it by breathing, so that that breath, which God made by breathing, for what else is to breathe and to make breath, is the soul, he made also a wife for him, to aid him in the work of generating his kind, and her he formed of a bone taken out of the man's side, working in a divine manner. For we are not to conceive of this work in a carnal fashion, as if God wrought, as we commonly see artisans, who use their hands, and material furnished to them, that by their artistic skill they may fashion some material object. God's hand is God's power, and he, working invisibly, effects visible results. 
But this seems fabulous rather than true to men who measure by customary and everyday works the power and wisdom of God, whereby he understands and produces without seeds, even seeds themselves. And because they cannot understand the things which at the beginning were created, they are skeptical regarding them as if the very things which they do know about human propagation, conceptions, and births, would seem less incredible if told to those who had no experience of them, though these very things, too, are attributed by many rather to physical and natural causes than to the work of the divine mind. CHAPTER Twenty Four. But in this book we have nothing to do with those who do not believe that the divine mind made or cares for this world. As for those who believe their own Plato, that all mortal animals, among whom man holds the preeminent place, and is near to the gods themselves, were created not by that most high God who made the world, but by other lesser gods created by the supreme, and exercising a delegated power under his control, if only those persons be delivered from the superstition which prompts them to seek a plausible reason for paying divine honors and sacrificing to these gods as their creators, they will easily be disentangled also from this their error. For it is blasphemy to believe or to say, even before it can be understood, that any other than God is creator of any nature, be it never so small and mortal. And as for the angels, whom those Platonists prefer to call gods, although they do, so far as they are permitted and commissioned, aid in the production of the things around us, yet not on that account are we to call them creators, any more than we call gardeners the creators of fruits and trees." Chapter 25. For whereas there is one form which is given from without to every bodily substance, such as the form which is constructed by potters and smiths, and that class of artists who paint and fashion forms like the body of animals, but another and internal form which is not itself constructed, but as the efficient cause produces not only the natural bodily forms, but even the life itself of the living creatures, and which proceeds from the secret and hidden choice of an intelligent and living nature, let that first-mentioned form be attributed to every artificer, but this latter to one only, God, the creator and originator who made the world itself and the angels without the help of world or angels. For the same divine and, so to speak, creative energy which cannot be made but makes, and which gave to the earth and sky their roundness, the same divine, effective, and creative energy gave their roundness to the eye, and to the apple, and the other natural objects which we anywhere see received also their form, not from without, but from the secret and profound might of the Creator, who said, Do not I fill heaven and earth, and whose wisdom it is that reacheth from one end to another mightily, and sweetly doth she order all things. Wherefore I know not what kind of aid the angels, themselves created first, afforded to the Creator in making other things. I cannot ascribe to them what perhaps they cannot do, neither ought I to deny them such faculty as they have. But by their leave I attribute the creating and originating work which gave being to all natures to God, to whom they themselves thankfully ascribe their existence. We do not call gardeners the creators of their fruits, for we read, Neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Nay, not even the earth itself do we call a creator, though she seems to be the prolific mother of all things, which she aids in germinating and bursting forth from the seed, and which she keeps rooted in her own breast. For we likewise read, God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. 
we ought not even to call a woman the creatress of her own offspring, for he rather is its creator who said to his servant, Before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee. And although the various mental emotions of a pregnant woman do produce in the fruit of her womb similar qualities, as Jacob with his peeled wands caused piebald sheep to be produced, yet the mother as little creates her offspring as she created herself. Whatever bodily or seminal causes, then, may be used for the production of things, either by the cooperation of angels, men, or the lower animals, or by sexual generation, and whatever power the desires and mental emotions of the mother have to produce in the tender and plastic fetus corresponding lineaments and colors, yet the natures themselves which are thus variously affected are the production of none but the Most High God. It is his occult power which pervades all things, and is present in all without being contaminated, which gives being to all that is, and modifies and limits its existence, so that without him it would not be thus, or thus, nor would have any being at all. If, then, in regard to that outward form which the workman's hand imposes on his work, we do not say that Rome and Alexandria were built by masons and architects, but by the kings whose will, plan, and resources they were built, but so that the one has Romulus, the other Alexander, for its founder, with how much greater reason ought we to say that God alone is the author of all natures, since he neither uses for his work any material which was not made by him, nor any workmen who were not also made by him, and since, if he were, so to speak, to withdraw from created things his creative power, they would straightway relapse into the nothingness in which they were before they were created? before, I mean, in respect of eternity, not of time. For what other creator could there be of time than he who created those things whose movements make time? CHAPTER Twenty Six. It is obvious that in attributing the creation of the other animals to those inferior gods who were made by the Supreme, he meant it to be understood that the immortal part was taken from God himself, and that these minor creators added the mortal part. That is to say, he meant them to be considered the creators of our bodies, but not of our souls. But since Porphyry maintains that if the soul is to be purified, all entanglement with the body must be escaped from, and at the same time agrees with Plato and the Platonists in thinking that those who have not spent a temperate and honorable life return to mortal bodies as their punishment, to bodies of brutes in Plato's opinion, to human bodies in Porphyry's, it follows that those whom they would have us worship as our parents and authors, that they may plausibly call them gods, are, after all, but the forgers of our fetters and chains, not our creators, but our jailers and turnkeys, who lock us up in the most bitter and melancholy house of correction. Let the Platonists, then, either cease menacing us with our bodies as the punishment of our souls, or preaching that we are to worship as gods those whose work upon us they exhort us by all means in our power to avoid and escape from. But indeed both opinions are quite false. It is false that souls return again to this life to be punished, and it is false that there is any other creator of anything in heaven or earth than he who made the heaven and the earth. For if we live in a body only to expiate our sins, how says Plato in another place that the world could not have been the most beautiful and good had it not been filled with all kinds of creatures, mortal and immortal? But if our creation, even as mortals, be a divine benefit, how is it a punishment to be restored to a body, that is, to a divine benefit? 
and if God, as Plato continually maintains, embraced in his eternal intelligence all the ideas both of the universe and of all the animals, how then should he not with his own hand make them all? Could he be unwilling to be the constructor of works, the idea and plan of which called for his ineffable and ineffably to be praised intelligence? Chapter 27 with good cause, therefore, does the true religion recognize and proclaim that the same God who created the universal cosmos created also all the animals, souls as well as bodies. Among the terrestrial animals man was made by him in his own image, and, for the reason I have given, was made one individual, though he was not left solitary. For there is nothing so social by nature, so unsocial by its corruption, as this race and human nature has nothing more appropriate either for the prevention of discord or for the healing of it where it exists than the remembrance of that first parent of us all whom god was pleased to create alone that all men might be derived from one and that they might thus be admonished to preserve unity among their whole multitude but from the fact that the woman was made for him from his side it was plainly meant that we should learn how dear the bond between man and wife should be these works of God do certainly seem extraordinary, because they are the first works. They who do not believe them ought not to believe any prodigies, for these would not be called prodigies, did they not happen out of the ordinary course of nature. But is it possible that anything should happen in vain, however hidden be its cause, in so grand a government of divine providence? One of the sacred psalmists says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, what prodigies he hath wrought in the earth. Why God made woman out of man's side, and what this first prodigy prefigured, I shall, with God's help, tell in another place. But at present, since this book must be concluded, let us merely say that in this first man, who was created in the beginning, there was laid the foundation, not indeed evidently, but in God's foreknowledge, of these two cities or societies, so far as regards the human race. For from that man all men were to be derived, some of them to be associated with the good angels and their reward, others with a wicked and punishment, all being ordered by the secret yet just judgment of God. For since it is written, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, neither can his grace be unjust, nor his justice cruel. End of Book Twelve, Chapters 19-27 through 27. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org